minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfect. Oh, mercy. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside my apartment in downtown Baltimore, it is the Masson All Access Podcast brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. Paul Mancano here with you. Got a lot to get to on this podcast. We're going to have Ski Molesky at MassonSports.com on in just a bit. Talk about this week's 20 in 20s, Gunnar Henderson and Keegan Aiken. We're also going to have Mike Bordick on to talk about his experience during the 1994-95 MLB strike when he was in Oakland A, how he stayed in shape during that time, and how he dealt with the fact that baseball was put on hold for an indefinite amount of time, some lessons and stories from then that we could use during this time. But first, Trey Mancini hopped on a Zoom call with reporters earlier today, talked about a myriad of topics. First and foremost, how he dealt with with the tough diagnosis that he got in mid-March that he had stage 3 colon cancer, he put it behind him pretty quickly and moved on within days of getting that diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, from the second I got the diagnosis, I, I knew I had to accept it pretty quickly. Um, and I, I think that's helped me a lot. Um, I didn't really, you know, mope around too much or, um, you know, it, it was, don't get me wrong, it was really tough, especially the first few days. And talking to the team was was really tough too and telling them kind of what was going on but um yeah I think accepting it pretty quickly and just you know knowing this is what's going to happen um um that helped me a lot and and going into my surgery I wasn't sure we weren't sure if it was like later stage two or early stage three so um there was a possibility I was not going to have to do chemotherapy so that was a little tough I actually the doctor called me the morning of my birthday and told me that um you know three of my 23 lymph nodes like there were three of them that were right up next to the tumor had the um, tested positive for cancer in it. So at that point, even though he got the tumor out, the surgery was great and it didn't really break through the colon. Um, you never know if a cell can escape to anywhere else in the body. And, and the chemo at that point is, is kind of like an insurance policy because you, you don't know if that could spread anywhere else and, and um, you know, give you a different form of cancer. So it was, it was a no brainer to, to do the chemotherapy for long-term health reasons. Trey also talked about the strange timing of these events, the fact that he went into surgery and came out of surgery with baseball being put on hold. As he has undergone these chemo treatments, he has had to take all the precautions necessary going to his chemo treatments alone, coming back, driving himself back alone, all kinds of strange things going on during this health crisis with the coronavirus. You're right. Actually, that happened literally in the middle of my surgery. So I woke up and I remember um, my whole family, my my mom and sisters, I remember told me that like that they kind of had shut down spring training and nobody was sure what was going on. So um, that was like, you know, after the are you OK? You know, they told me that that was going on. So, um, yeah, it was just a weird day. It's been a weird couple of months, I think, for all of us, too. But, um, yeah, especially since the fact that I've I've kind of been doing what I would have anyway, like post-surgery and stuff. Um, it, it's a little weird that the world kind of stopped at the same time. Um, and it's just a weird coincidence. But um, again, I, I hope that there's a safe way 
that baseball returns because it's just so yeah it's so strange not having sports on especially baseball right now you know we're about to go into May it's the first time in my whole life since I was five years old that I'm not playing baseball you know in late April and May so and I think it's the same it's definitely the same for all the guys in the league too so it's just a bizarre time and and I know everybody wants to get out there and play when it's safe and and there's a lot of hurdles that obviously have to be crossed but I know that, um, you know, a lot of plans are being set up and, and there's a lot of different ideas floating around. And I, I feel confident that it will return at some point this year. Trey mentioned in his piece with the Players' Tribune that he has been going to appointments for his chemotherapy treatments once every two weeks. He discussed that a little bit more in detail, the kind of things he is undergoing during these treatments. I went for my second round of chemo on Monday. So I'm going every other week. I started April 13th. So every other Monday, um, and then I just went April 27th, I'll go again in two weeks. Um, So, I mean, I'm still learning and it could change as it goes a little bit. Um, It could get a little, you know, I could get a little bit more serious side effects. I could, you know, tolerate it better throughout. But um, the first round, I'd say went really well um, and better than expected. I have the infusion. I, I have two different, um, you know, drugs that they infuse me with. So, um, the one that goes in Monday kind of makes you sensitive to cold a little bit, like for about 24 hours. So like my fingertips and toes and like, if I drink anything cold, you're really sensitive to that, uh, for about 24 hours. And then, um, I also, I had a port put in my chest and actually a nurse is coming here in about an hour to take that out. Um, and that kind of drips into my port for 46 hours. They install it on the Monday, I get it taken out on Wednesday. And then I'd say the worst day that I had after my first round was the Thursday. So like tomorrow I might be feeling a little more tired and, and um, you know, maybe have some minor nausea, but by Friday I got my appetite back pretty well and um, was, was good to go for the next 10 days until, until I went back on Monday. Um, so hopefully it stays like that, you know, where it's just like kind of three or four days of not feeling ideal and then 10 days of, of feeling good. So, um, you know, I'm hoping for those 10 days or whatever days I'm feeling good, I'm going to take advantage of and, you know, get all my exercise in. And, and I'm finally able to start, you know, lifting like kind of lighter weights. I, uh, I got some, some bands and dumbbells from one of the strength coaches the other day, actually, um, you know, to have here at the house. So I'm going to start to try to do a little bit of exercise in that regard. I've gone for a couple of runs. So um, I mean, I'm definitely able to do some things, not, not, you know, as much as I'm used to, but um, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to, to try to keep up physically. Cause um, <clears throat> you know, obviously when you go through this, you, you lose a little weight. So it's, it's, you know, you want to try to maintain and, and build that back up even while you're going through the chemo. Trey has obviously received a huge outpouring of support over the past few weeks and past month plus he mentioned some of the calls that have mattered to him most and stuck out to him the most during this time. The two I mentioned in my article, Mo and Brooks Robinson, um, really stood out to me. Um, you know, Mo, again, we, we all know Mo and everything he's gone through. And he, was, he called me, he was really concerned and sad. And it just, I mean, it always strikes a chord whenever you talk to him. But, you know, for, for him to be concerned about me um, – and, and worried was, was really touching. And, and, um, you know, it just goes to show again, the kind of kid he is and, and how special of a kid he is and what he means to, to all of us, um, you know, who play on the Orioles and Ravens and the whole city. So I thought that was amazing. And then Brooks Robinson called me too. um, you know, the night, I think it was, I can't remember if it was the night of my surgery or the night 
after um but he called me and i talked to him for a good 10 15 minutes so um and he's he's one of the best people i've ever come across in in the baseball world and i'm honored to know him and and um to have gotten to know him after the over the past couple of years so those two really kind of stood out to me i'd say and finally trey showed the positivity that he has shown throughout this entire process he was pretty confident that he is not only going to make a full recovery but he will be back on a baseball field, probably not in 2020, but definitely at some point. Yeah, I mean, I fully expect to make a a full recovery and be back. Um, Like I said, even throughout the chemotherapy, I'm going to be doing things, um, everything I can to stay in shape and, and, um, you know, try to maintain my strength and all that. And and then, you know, you have a whole off season to get ready for next year too. So there's no doubt in my mind, but there's also a couple risks during chemo. I know that I have to monitor too. Um, there's like a couple side effects that can go along with it, especially I think the biggest one is neuropathy um, with this kind of treatment can, can happen with, you know, it, it's, um, I, I don't want to say rare, but um, you know, most people don't get it, but it's possible. So it's something I'm, I'm monitoring throughout all that. And, and we can change the dose around if I start um, feeling like a little weird in that regard. That's just like kind of a tingling in your fingers and toes. And sometimes it um, in really rare cases, it can be irreversible. So, so that's definitely something that I'm aware of and something that I'm going to monitor because, um, you know, I chose the treatment plan I did to reduce the risk of that because, because of baseball. So, um, so things like that, I'm going to monitor, but I'm, I'm doing everything I, I can. And I have no doubt in my mind, I'll be back playing baseball. Now we bring in massinsports.com Steve Molesky, who joins us via zoom call. Steve, thanks so much for hopping on. You got it, Paul. So we just heard a little bit from Trey Mancini's zoom call with reporters Look, we knew that the guy was giving with his time, and he has always been great uh, speaking publicly. He's always been incredibly insightful when he speaks, but uh, this was even a special case for him. He gave so much uh, background information. He said it himself. He's an open book, uh, talking about his chemotherapy treatments, talking about uh, what he's been going through really since the middle of March, and uh, just the, the candor with which he speaks and... Uh, the positivity, it was like he was saying all this stuff, you know, with a smile on his face almost because the guy is so positive and you've known that about him going back to his days in the minors, Steve. I feel like you're especially equipped uh, to discuss the positivity and and, uh, determination of uh, Trey Mancini. Well, he's a special guy. He's proving it again. (laughs) And I mean, Paul, I was just sitting here yesterday thinking, Trey Mancini, cancer. I mean, I mean that just is hard to wrap your head around those words when you think about this special player and what he's become. And, I mean, he's overcome a lot in his career. I mean, remember, he was never a top 100 prospect. I mean, he was not supposed to be one of the best players in the American League, but he turned out to be that. And, I mean, the Orioles look forward to the days back on the field. But such a special kid. I can remember going back to his first year at Aberdeen, I didn't know him except beyond his stats and his bio. And I met him in Aberdeen and we sat outside the clubhouse and did an interview for 10 or 15 minutes. We probably sat for another 20 or 30 just talking. I drove home that day saying, I don't know this kid will ever make it, but he's impressive. He's smart. He's articulate. You can tell he's got his act together. And I'll bet you he's going to have a good shot because the things are in place. And now we'll see how the baseball handles itself. And uh, he handled that pretty well, too. Yeah, I mean, and just the timing of this thing has been so bizarre, too. He, he went into surgery, he said, and then came out of surgery 
and was told essentially that baseball had been shut down as he was still coming to and after the first questions of how are you doing and are you okay after he was still regaining consciousness he found out that baseball was coming back I mean I have I can't imagine undergoing chemotherapy treatments while hospitals are currently dealing with a pandemic um he sounds like he's taking all the necessary precautions but um it's just got to be such a, a strange time and a difficult time for a guy that has to drive himself to and from chemotherapy appointments by himself uh, and, and go alone. And the, the guy is, is going through, look, everybody's going through a tough time and he acknowledged that. And, um, you know, he wanted to, that's why he stayed quiet for so long about this uh, because he didn't want to, you know, take, draw attention to himself knowing how he is, but he now is is taking this time to share his story, and um, it, it just shows, you know, the the kind of stuff that he is undergoing uh, quietly and, and kind of suffering through quietly. Yeah, and I mean, he just has what it takes to beat it. We know that, and we know he will, and we don't know the date he'll be back playing at Camden Yards, but we just know it will come. Yeah. And I mean, it was really uplifting to see him today for all the media that got to be on that Zoom call. I mean, he looked none the worse for wear. He looked like the regular Trey. We know that's not not the case, and we know he's going through something incredibly difficult and tough on his body, but he just has a way of uplifting people. He did it again. He talked about his special relationship with Mo Gaba, the great young fan who's dealt with way more uh, in his life than any young kid should ever have to deal with, and he befriended Mo because he was inspired by Mo and ironically, now Mo is kind of inspiring him in reverse. I mean, he reached out to Trey and said, stay strong, Trey. I mean, can you imagine that? Yeah. This kid who's as strong as anyone I've ever known and seen, uh, you know, they have a special relationship. It's a genuine friendship. It's not a photo op where they get together once a year and put their arm around each other. Trey sees this kid with no cameras around. He doesn't want it's not about cameras. It's about a special bond between a pro athlete and a young kid. And so. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and, you know, it's, I feel like, a great example of, of good karma in a way because everything that Trey gave to Mo uh, in terms of uplifting his spirits, Mo is now giving back. Um, and it just uh, an amazing story, and we're rooting, obviously, our hardest for Trey um, to come back 100% whenever that may be um, and uh, hope that he's doing better. Um, all right, so Steve, I wanted to get your thoughts. We've been doing these 20 and 20 series, highlighting 20 Orioles players in their system to keep your eye on 2020 and beyond. This week, we got two guys that you have covered in the past, Gunnar Henderson being one, the 18-year-old who you just spoke with recently. He was a second-round pick by the Orioles in 2019. Still very young, but a, a toolsy guy. Um, but when he came to Camden Yards, he seemed very mature, um, seemed like, you know, he, he's still a raw prospect, but it seemed like he kind of had the mental makeup uh, to go to at least advance through the Orioles system. Is that kind of the sense that you got when you spoke to him recently? It does seem that like that. I mean, it does seem pretty mature. I mean, we have to remember he was drafted. He was 17. He turned 18 a couple weeks after the draft, and he's still 18. It hasn't been 12 months since he was drafted. So this kid's young and new and fresh to the organization. And uh, unfortunately, uh, baseball shut down, or he should be playing shortstop at Del Mar every night right now. It's probably where he was headed, his first full pro year. And uh, he's got a lot to offer, Paul. I mean, he's got a really good bat, and they feel like the, he is going to grow into power 
Uh, he's been compared to Corey Seager as a comp on the major league level. Wow. And some people have said he could be eventually, they think he could be a left-handed hitting version of like Ryan Mountcastle. So, I mean, this kid's got really good potential with the bat. He's got a plus arm. He's a pretty good defender. They don't know if it's 6'3", 195 now, and maybe gets bigger. Will he have to move to third? If he does, they feel like the hit tool will play enough at third. So, I mean, short would be great if he stays there. He's a decent fielder, and we'll see how it's going to go. But, um, uh, you know, he was the second pick uh, last year by the Orioles, number 42 overall. Yeah, you mentioned he played those 29 games down in the Gulf Coast League. He hit 259, 331 on base, had just one homer, 11 RBI, 701 OPS. It, it, it is just kind of a, a, a looking at him like a, a lot of raw you know, potential. Um, he could develop that power. He could develop the defensive tools uh, to stick at shortstop uh, long term. But at this point, I mean, he's 18, um, you know, he is still so far away from the big leagues. It's just a matter of hitting on these certain things. What other things did you glean from your conversation with him when you spoke to him uh, a couple of days ago? I mean, as you said, I think he's a mature kid. I think he understands the process he's going through. Uh, I asked him, Paul, about this, and I've asked a lot of players about this when they first turned pro. So in, in high school, his batting average was 550. <laughs> and after four games at the Gulf Coast League, he was two for 16. So I said, what is that culture shock like dealing for, you know, that? And, and he, he said, it, yeah, it was new for me. And uh, he said, but I knew it would come. And he said, uh, I had faced top line pitching the summer before on the showcase circuit leading into the draft. So even though he tore up his high school area in Alabama, he had faced elite high school pitching and he knew he wasn't going to go in there and just tear it up. So it, it's a process, and the Orioles are no organization overly grades the kids' first 100 at-bats in Gulf Coast League. It's just getting into pro ball, and as he said, in a high school, maybe one or two good arms on a team, and here you're facing all these kids have good arms. So you've got to learn to play and adjust and, and yeah, do proper nutrition and keep your energy up, and you now you're playing every day, not three or four times a week. So uh, a lot to adjust to. But uh, this kid's got tools the Orioles really like. And he comes at a good time for the Orioles, who they are loaded in terms of their farm system and pitching, in terms of pitching talent. Um, they have some exciting outfielders in their farm system. But the infield prospects, they're a little bit short on. They don't have too many guys coming up through the system. They maybe have, you know, a Mason McCoy, a Ryland Bannon. But beyond that, they're kind of thin there. So, you feel like almost if he, even if he has to move to third base, um, he could be very valuable for the Orioles. And it, that's something that Mike Elias mentioned when he was drafted and when he was signed was that, you know, he, the, the Orioles are in need of these kind of guys. And Adley Rutschman was a perfect number one overall pick, but they need to load up on, in terms of up the middle defenders, uh, whether it be center fielders, but particularly shortstop, second base infielders. And the Orioles drafted a lot of up the middle last year. They're Hernay's kid and and um, and Gunner and some others. And, of course, Adam Hall is like a year ahead of Gunner, who played at Delmarva last year, did really well. So, I mean, one thing that I think is uh, not frustrating for fans, but it's the patience we need on these kids. Generally, Paul, the way it works is most teams take a young kid like Gunner. Let's say if we had had a normal season, and he probably would have played all year at Delmarva. And yeah. then you start, you move them faster later. 
but usually early, like their first pro season, it's okay for a kid to play a full year, stick with the same coaching staff all year, not have to move. He's got to maybe live with a host family and then just learn to be on his own, be in one environment. And maybe as a great year, he wins league MVP or his all-star, he gets accolades. And then you go to Frederick and then maybe you move him to Bowie later. You know, you can move faster later, but they tend to move them slower, early, fast, late. And, uh, you know, when they get there, when they get there. And uh, as Andy McPhail told us, uh, it's always better to have be a month too late than a month too soon on a prospect. Yeah, exactly. All right. N- another guy who is much closer to the big leagues, that'd be lefty Keegan Aiken, who is the Orioles number 11 prospect, according to MLB Pipeline. A guy who won the minor league pitcher of the year back in 2018 he, uh, when he was with Bowie, had a breakout season that year. I believe he shared the award with Zach Lowther at that point. Um, but the stats were not there for him in 2019 down in the International League with Norfolk. 25 games, a 4.73 ERA, 1.5 whip. Did lead the league with 131 strikeouts, um, but the walk rate was up to almost five walks per, per nine, which is just too high. It was the highest ERA whip walk rate hits per nine um, rate of his career. Um, but I think to keep in mind the the context of it as well, the fact that the International League ERA, median ERA in terms of team ERA, jumped by a full run last year for whatever reason – Nobody was having a good year on the mound, it felt like, in the International League. So I feel like his stats aren't too bad when you take everything into context. Among pitchers who had enough innings to qualify for ERA leaders in the International League, he was sixth. Can you believe that? At four, <laughs> what did you say? It was four, six, seven? Four, seven, now, three, there were yeah. Two things at work here, two major things at work. One was, last year was the first year AAA used the Major League Baseball, which, as we know jumps a little more than the minor league baseball. And so just look at double A offense last year and triple A huge difference. Yeah. So all triple A pitchers face that number two, that inflated that ERA you mentioned. Number two, the Orioles really worked, pushed him on pitch development last year. Uh, the year before, and Aiken has admitted this, he threw 75 or 80% fastballs. No one in the major leagues, almost no one throws that high percentage. You've got to mix in the secondaries. So the Orioles made sure he did that, and he was throwing 2-0 change-ups, 2-0 sliders, pitches and counts he never would have before. They were, they were making him intentionally be uncomfortable out there to learn this is what you're going to need to get major league hitters out. So when I talked to Oriole people like Chris Holt, they were not unhappy at all with Keegan Aiken. In fact, the opposite. They were happy with him. He got through a full year. They think he's going to be a durable innings eater type. The kid improved his secondary pitches greatly. And, you know, Paul, in spring training, we saw that. I, there were games I saw Aiken. I remember once against Atlanta, he gave up a three-run homer to one of their top prospects, and that marred his outing because he rolled through almost the rest of it. Yeah. You know, it would have been great on the statute if that one pitch he could have back, but he can't. And so eventually he's going to not have to throw that pitch. But still, uh, you could see the secondaries were better. And so uh, I'm interested to see what comes next for Aiken. Yeah, they, the scouts des- describe his developing slider as slurvy. Um, his, he's really working on that changeup, as you mentioned there, Steve. And that fastball sits between 92 and 95 miles an hour, throwing it a lot less, though, as you said. But having those secondary pitches will help a lot. In terms of where he fits in long-term, um, you know, the Orioles tried him out in some spring training games, and 
Um, as you mentioned, he had some good, some bad. Uh, so he may not be with the team. You know, say they start the season. Who knows if 2020 were a normal season? But, um, right. you know, in terms of his long-term development, do you see him potentially as a, a back-end starter if he hits his ceiling in the big leagues? That could be. I mean, I, I think he's, uh, as opening day 2020 hits, whenever it does, or if it had, had hit in March as planned, he's probably starting at AAA Norfolk. He's a phone call away. And it would be intriguing to see if after the year of development he went through, now can he produce better results? And so now you're looking for him to put more consistency together, put more two-run seven-inning outings together, and take a 4-6-7 and make it a 4-10 or a 3-8 or a 3-6. And then let's see what he can do at the major league level. I think his day will come. He's going to get a chance to see if he can be a starter. And, and it, well, like many pitchers, sometimes they pitch their way to the bullpen. That could happen to Keegan. We don't know. But I think the Orioles are very committed to him as a starter. Left-handed, you like that. He's been through all the stops on the minors. So now the next stop is to see when his day comes and what he does with it when it does come. Yeah, I expressed on this podcast last week how frustrating it is from a baseball standpoint not getting to see guys like a Keegan Aiken, a Zach Lowther, a Michael Bauman, all these guys that are right on the cusp of the major leagues that we just were waiting to see where the chips were going to fall, who was going to make the major league roster, who was going to get an in-season call-up, who was going to be back in Bowie, who was going to be in Norfolk. So many guys, so many Orioles pitching prospects that were right on the cusp of the major leagues, and I feel like Keegan Aiken was one of them. Steve, thanks so much for hopping on here on the Mass and All Access podcast. Maybe you could follow Trey's lead, watch The Wire. I'm sure you've seen it already. (laughs) Watch The Office again. Uh, Have you been binging at this point? Well, I actually have been watching The Wire. I'm one of the guys Mancini was talking about today. (laughs) And I had never watched it before, so Balmer people can rip into me for that, and some have. But uh, I'm I'm not as far ahead as Trey. I'm on season three. Okay. It's really interesting. It's really good. And so it's it's as good as everybody says it is, and uh, I look forward to more. Awesome. Well, thanks, Steve. We look forward to more from you, of course, on MassInSports.com. You can check him out there and then follow him on Twitter, at Mass and Steve. Steve, we really appreciate it. My pleasure, Paul. Thanks. Now we bring in Mike Bordick, who joins us via Zoom call. Mike, thanks so much for hopping on here during these times. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Paul. So, Mike, how have you been spending your time? It's been almost a month, or over a month, I guess, since we should have had opening day. What have you been doing with yourself? Yeah, it's been a pretty interesting experience, say the least, obviously, for everybody, everybody involved, really the whole world. But uh, after I left spring training, when they shut down the doors of spring training, uh, took a few days with my kids because they actually came down. They were on their their school break. So uh, there were there were some broken hearts there for sure. Uh, A lot of people down about this virus shutting down baseball. So we took like three days, went up the coast. And when we got home, um, just kind of fell into place a little bit. The kids started their school projects, but my wife kind of stirred things up a little bit about uh, three weeks ago. She ended up getting some pygmy goats. We have uh, a little farm out here and uh, we've always talked about, you know, being somewhat of homesteaders, I guess. So uh, she started the process and here we are learning how to take care of little goats. And I think some chickens are coming next. <laughs> oh man. What, what is the process? It's been fun, man. It's been fun. Yeah. What is the process of taking care of goats like? I, I can take care of a dog barely. How do you take care of goats? Yeah. Well, 
just right now it's feeding them, right? Just like uh, any animal or even uh, some of your children, you know, you got to <laughs> feed them, keep them alive. <laughs> That's really the most important thing right now. Yeah. So they're still young enough. They're actually feeding off a bottle. So we okay. give them a little goat's milk and uh, give them a couple of three bottles a day. And, you know, pretty soon they'll be eating some hay and, and some, some other things. Gotcha. Yeah. That's parenthood boiled down to its essence. The Just hope make sure I think is maybe one day have, yeah, the hope is one day to maybe have some goat's milk or, or some goat cheese. And, and if I do ever get to that point, I'll make sure I bring some in for you. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to have to bring that into the broadcast booth, uh, from now on. Uh, so Mike, I wanted to, uh, to yeah. ask you uh, first and foremost about the strike that I think is really the only thing we have that is even close to comparable to what we have going on now. It was in 94-95. You were with Oakland at that point. What memories do you have of going into that strike and kind of the idea that you might not know when this thing is going to end, but you're already so many months into the season, over halfway into the season, and all of a sudden you just kind of have to halt operations. Yeah, I mean, you could really kind of feel it building as the season went on, uh, you know, in a, in a bad way. Uh, but you were, I think as players, we were hopeful that things would get resolved. I mean, there's no way they're going to shut down a baseball season, right? Well, we were wrong, but I think as players in the midst of the season, our thought process was stay in shape, be ready to go. So when they sent me home, uh, I went back to Auburn, Maine. That's where I was living at the time. I recruited a couple of high school kids to uh, hit me some ground balls, throw me some batting practice. We went out to the high school field, you know, every day, every other day. Uh, I guess as the summer kind of went on, the workout started diminishing a little bit more. But we were trying to stay prepared because when the bell rang, we wanted to be ready to go. But unfortunately, that bell just didn't ring for us. Yeah, and when it finally did ring, I mean – what was the relief like when it was finally over? And it obviously took months and months into, uh, you know, the 95 year. What was the relief like to be able to go back? And, and did you feel like you were ready to go back for baseball? Yeah. Oh boy. I'm telling you, everybody was ready. You know, the players, I think uh, players with experience kind of, uh, looked at it in a different light. You know, I, I think it becomes more of a business. Obviously the union and ownership was kind of going back and forth with the collective bargaining stuff. So, you know, when you're involved in that, you look at it a little bit differently, but all players want to do is be on the field and play baseball, play the game they love, you know? Uh, so that anticipation leading up to the start of that 95 season, I think everybody was on board and excited about it. And with the hope that, you know, it wouldn't happen again. There wouldn't be this kind of break in baseball and that both sides would, would you know, ultimately come to a conclusion. And, and they have. They've been working pretty well together. And uh, it's unfortunate right now with this coronavirus that baseball's uh, everybody really has taken a step back. Yeah, and you mentioned that you were able to use some different tactics like recruiting high schoolers to, to stay in shape. But do you think all of your teammates and uh, – I guess, players that you played against. Do you think everybody else was able to stay in shape or were you kind of the anomaly? No, I, I think I was probably the outcast, really. I, I think more guys had better opportunities, really, to stay in shape than I did. Uh, me going back to Maine, uh, shoot, there was probably still snow on the ground. It was the middle of the summer. So, yeah, there may have been still snow. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding about the snow. But I, I think for the most part, players – 
kind of anticipated the, the season starting again. So trying to keep themselves in shape. This is a different uh, beast right here, obviously, this virus that's, that's going around. And I know that players, uh, even myself, and I'm sure you as well, uh, have anxiety about the start of a season, you know, and are trying to stay sharp and, and focused and keep yourself baseball ready. And I know there are players out there that are still throwing with hopes that, you know, once spring training does start and they get a chance to kind of get themselves going, that they already have their legs, their arms underneath them. And hopefully it just doesn't take as much time. I, I just don't see any professional athlete that's kind of sitting at home right now not doing anything because uh, that would just be a detriment to their career. Yeah. And do you think it's kind of almost more frustrating because – we were already several weeks into spring training. The team was already starting to take shape. We were already starting to see some young guys blossom. And then all of a sudden, it just gets shut down. It felt like almost, you know, guys like Chris Davis was starting to build some momentum heading right into the season. And then all of a sudden, uh, they just have to stop and go home. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, I think the Orioles, uh, Brandon Hyde, we're really in a good place in spring training. Now, were they going to win a hundred games? I doubt that, but there was a nice feeling in the, with the clubhouse pitching was turning the corner. Doug Roquel uh, had really done a nice job kind of getting in the pitcher's ears, making them more aggressive. So there was a good feel in spring training. You're right. Chris Davis was a great spring training story. Some of the young guys really starting to show their worth. So uh, there was excitement, anticipation, just like I think any spring, uh, happens with any team, you know, yeah. there's that, that good feeling. It's a, it's a rebirth. It's a renewal. Uh, maybe this team turns the corner with the help of some younger players. So, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that it just got shut down like that. Uh, so abruptly, but, you know, I think this team going into the end of last year had some pretty good chemistry going, and I think they'll be able to kick it right back up. They have a lot of great motivation, obviously to start the season. Um, you know, getting back, getting the fans going again. But also Trey Mancini, I think, is a great inspirational story for these guys to kind of rally around and use him as, as the, uh, the call for the year. Absolutely. And it was great news to hear that he's on his road, his way back to recovery, and uh, hopefully he is going to make a 100% recovery. Even if it he may not return to the field in 2020, um, that they feel confident that he will be back at some point. Um, Mike, I, I do want to ask you also about the, the 1997 Orioles and the 1997 ALDS because we have been replaying those games and rebroadcasting those games on Masson. And that team, talk about a team that almost did win 100 games. They won 98 games that season. You, of course, had four hits yeah. in the ALDS. Just how good was that team heading into the postseason? Boy, I, you know, I still look back and I played on some really good teams coming up with the A's, you know, uh, Bash Brothers and stuff like that. I think that that 97 Orioles team was the best team I played on. Uh, just a, an incredible wow. group of veteran players and young superstars and great pitching as well. A deep bullpen. Uh, Myers was the best closer in the game that year. So, uh, it was a little shocking when it came unraveled by the Indians, but um, the DS, the ALDS was a good battle against uh, a great team as well. The Mariners had some studs on that team, right, with Randy Johnson and Griffey Jr. So, but it was fun, and there are always uh, great unsung heroes that I think show up in the postseason. Uh, Rebele, 
was one of them. We hit the home runs off uh, Randy Johnson. But really, it all came down to the pitching and always does in the postseason. We had Musina and Erickson that were dealing, uh, uh, Jimmy Key. And, of course, Kamenecki, I think, was an unsung hero for the whole year, really, in 97. He came away with, I think, 10 wins as a spot starter. So, uh, yeah, a lot of positive stuff, a lot of great feelings. You know, unfortunately, uh, we didn't we weren't able to host the tro- uh, hoist the trophy that year. And that's always the goal and what everybody in Baltimore is anticipating as well. Yeah, and you did you mentioned the uh, the pitching that you were going up against in that ALDS, including Randy Johnson. I looked at it, it looks like you had the first RBI of that postseason and of that series against Randy Johnson in a nine to three win in game one. Uh, what what was it like to go up against Randy Johnson at you know really the the peak of uh, of his career at that point? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Paul. Well, you know, I was kind of that type of player all year in 97. Uh, it was no surprise to me that I picked up that first RBI. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. Actually, I struggled really all year in 97. It was a tough offensive year. Played okay defensively, but uh, I, I don't know. Postseason came, and, and I felt pretty good. I had some good confidence going. And Randy Johnson, of course, uh, I don't know if that was the peak of his career, but he was definitely uh, pretty darn close to it. Yeah, he was intimidating. wasn't the best looking guy either to look at out there. He was like six eleven, so his release release point seemed a little bit closer. Uh, every fastball felt like it was going to take your kneecaps off. But you know, in the postseason, you just you, you let it fly. I know Buck Showalter always talked about you roll your dice and you, you hope it comes up right for you and. Uh, Against the Mariners, it did for us because that was definitely a challenging opponent. Yeah, and then those first two games, you you get nine to three wins in back to back games on the road. That sets you up to come back home and and clinch the thing and head to the ALCS. What was that like? Just the the emotions of uh, not only getting those two huge road wins, but then heading back home to clinch it. Yeah, you know that's what the challenge was. I think playing over there in the Kingdom. Uh, you know, the Mariners have a beautiful new stadium now, but back then it was the kingdom or it was all enclosed. It was like the, like the old Metrodome. So it was loud and it was obnoxious. I think the ceiling, <laughs> parts of the ceiling, it started to fall down then. Uh, so it was a pretty intense atmosphere, but it was nice to come away with there with some wins and, and bring it back home to Baltimore. And that's, that's the place you want to win right there. I mean, uh, I don't know. I, playing against the Orioles uh, through the early 90s and then – to be a part of that team in 97 and see what they went through in 96. It was incredible. And and the fan base was spectacular. I mean, you want to talk about feeling like a rock star every night it sold out every night, all summer long. It was incredible and it was so much fun and maybe the best experience I've ever had playing the game, really that 97 season, even though the frustrations were there, some uh, offensive numbers, but uh, just the fan support, the, the team and the way the city kind of rallied around was just incredible. It was, it was so much fun. And I'm sure Baltimore can't wait for their next Orioles playoff team. And the next time that they are back in the playoffs and have a rocking Oriole park at Camden yards. And first step is just getting baseball back at this point and getting any kind of baseball being played at Oriole park at Camden yards. Don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have anything to, to share with Orioles fans who are, missing as everybody is missing the sport that they love anything that you kind of want to um, say having gone through a strike yourself having gone through an extended layoff about 
you know, getting baseball back uh, at some point and trying to stay positive through this whole thing? Yeah, well, fortunately, I think for Oriole fans, they get to show some highlights on mass, and I think that's uh, pretty encouraging. And I know we get sick of sometimes seeing the, the same games played over and over again, but I think we all kind of love going down memory lane and kind of reliving some of the glory days. So, uh, shoot, maybe we can get some of your old high school videos in there as well, Paul. <laughs> Check out some of your <laughs> some of your swings. There's you know, not much I, to I see there. For the most <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think uh, in a lot of ways, you know, everybody misses something that they, they aren't able to do right now. And for us, it's it's being around baseball. You know, there are still ba- basketball, hockey playoffs that, you know, potentially could or couldn't happen. So there there's a lot of people with, with these little side notes going on uh, about, you know, they wish they could be entertained, uh, some of the greatest athletes, you know, in the world. But the fact of the matter is, there's still a problem going on, you know, globally. And I, I think people are, you know, pretty much aware of that. I know we have our wishes and hopes, but we got to get through this first, you know, and make sure it's a clean, safe environment for everybody, at least come up with a good plan. And then let's, uh, let's open the curtains up, man, and get excited. I, I mean, even just you and I talking about baseball, I get goosebumps thinking about that first game, you know, and how exciting it's going to be for, for everybody involved. And, you know, baseball, baseball can be a huge healer, you know, for a lot of people. So uh, that's the way I'm kind of looking at it. I think the hope and anxiety, the anticipation now of like a second spring training almost. And uh, well, really, it's, that's what it's going to have to be. But I, I think just, uh, you know, passion, showing the passion for the game when it when it's back. And obviously remembering, uh, you know, what this world has just gone through. Yeah. Well said. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. We really appreciate you hopping on here on Mass and All Access. I hope to get some updates about those goats at some point in the future. Paul, anytime. <laughs> anytime. Thanks for having me on your show. It's the first time in, I don't know, wherever long as you've been doing this. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I appreciate it. Awesome. Mike Bordick joining us here on the Mass and All Access podcast. That's it for the Mass and All Access podcast. We have podcasts coming your way every Wednesday, and we also have Mass and All Access shows coming your way every Tuesday at 3 o'clock. Thanks to Mike Bordick and Steve Molesky for hopping on. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify. Watch it on YouTube. Watch it on Facebook. Wherever you're getting your podcasts, you can get the Mass and All Access podcast. Appreciate it. And of course, the Mass and All Access podcast is brought to you by Marymount University. Visit marymountsaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. We'll see you later.